Greetings and welcome to my podcast, Algonquin Defining Moments. This is your host, Gay Clemson, oral history author, storyteller, and lover of all things Algonquin Park. As you know, I've researched and written extensively over the last 20 years about the human history of Algonquin Park, which I'm really having fun sharing with you now. Other than my murder mystery parlor game that I published in 2004 and a few comments in my award-winning book, Algonquin Voices, Selected Stories of Canoe Lake Women, I've avoided taking on the task of telling the Tom Thompson story. Firstly, this is because many people far more experienced in both art and historical research than I have extensively done so over the last 80 years. Secondly, as a longtime Canoe Lake resident, I often felt that I was way too close to the topic to do it the justice it deserved without a significant amount of what inventing Tom Thompson author Cheryl Grace called inventor creativity. However, with the anniversary of his burial at Canoe Lake at hand and the relative success of this podcast, I feel I'm ready for this challenge. As many Algonquin Park enthusiasts know, there are dozens of books that have been written on the subject over the last hundred years, many of them claiming to have the definitive answer to both his life and his mysterious death. First, a quick summary extracted from Wikipedia. Thomas John Thompson was a Canadian artist active in the early 20th century. During his short career, he produced roughly 400 oil sketches on small wood panels, along with around 50 larger works on canvas. His works consist almost entirely of landscapes depicting trees, skies, lakes, and rivers. His paintings use broad brush strokes and a liberal application of paint to capture the beauty and color of the Ontario landscape. Thompson's accidental death at 39 by drowning on Canoe Lake came shortly before the founding of the Group of Seven and is seen as a tragedy for Canadian art. So my objective here is to tell a story, a story of Thompson's life, his death, and his legend, and try to do so in as accurate and, as I hope, stimulating a manner as possible. But in case you're wondering, I am lifting quotes and storylines liberally from a long list of key sources. But if I have not clearly referenced where I have done so, I apologize in advance. I do hope you'll be able to discern this from the tone of my voice, where this is happening. But if you'd like to see the complete bibliography, check out my website, www.algonquinparkheritage.com, or you can take a look on podbean.com at the episode, and I've listed uh, all of the titles there as well. Either way, I take full responsibility for the way in which I've woven the story together and do hope you find it entertaining, and even thought-provoking, especially the invention about the trees, which you'll learn about later. So here goes. Drum roll, please. Thomas John Thompson was born on August 5, 1877, in Claremont, Ontario, a small town located northeast of Toronto. Soon after, the family moved north to a farm at Leith, near Owen Sound on Georgian Bay. Sixth in line and third of six boys in what eventually was a family of ten children, Thompson's childhood was likely no different than any other farm boy at that time. It likely involved lots of time outdoors, fishing, swimming, and boating. Some have suggested that he suffered from some sort of illness that kept him at home whilst he was young for long periods of time. But as an adult, at just under six foot tall with dark hair and expressive eyes, Thompson was athletic and leith with a purposeful stride and an instinctive air of independence. 
According to those who knew him, he was sincere, generous, self-reliant, quite shy, somewhat reserved, and prone at times to melancholy. He left school at 17 and enrolled in an Owen Sound Mechanics apprenticeship program, but after six months decided that foundry work wasn't for him. He then followed the footsteps of two of his brothers to the Canada Business College at Chatham, Ontario. Alas, that didn't jive with him either, so in 1901 he decided to join his brother George, who had by then moved to Seattle, Washington. George had previously graduated from the Canadian Business College and went to Washington State to start Acme Business College with a cousin, F.R. McLaren. Tom enrolled in his brother's college for a while, but soon discovered an interest in skill in drafting, fine lettering and writing. He went to work for a photo engraving firm named Maring and Ladd, and in 1903 jumped to rival Seattle Engraving Company. Research by art curator and writer Joan Murray suggests that in Seattle, Tom became smitten with a woman named Alice Eleanor Lambert, who was boarding at the same boarding house. At 15 years of age, to Thompson's 27, she apparently turned down a marriage proposal from him with a giggle or a laugh, that so devastated Thompson that he immediately left town and returned to Toronto. Later, in 1934, Alice Lambert wrote a novel whose main character, many believe, recaptured this relationship and framed it as Ms. Lambert's one true love. Roy McGregor, in his 2010 book on Thompson called Northern Light, shared this passage from her novel, and I quote, for one disturbing year, Miss Juliet Delaney had been desperately in love with a tall, dark boy named Tom, a commercial artist, who in the summer used to take her on streetcar rides to Alki Point and in the wintertime to dusty dimness of the public library, where he would pore over prints and reproductions of the masters. When finally, darkly morose and determined to succeed, Tom had gone east, the girl, unversed as she was in the art of pursuit and capture, had let him go, powerless to hold him back. Tom had been tall and slender, with thin, nervous hands and flashing eyes. If pictures of Thompson at about that time are any sign, this was a pretty accurate characterization of Tom. Lambert lived to the age of 95 and apparently shared with Murray her view that we were two star-crossed young and innocent people who never should have parted. Regardless of whatever really happened between the two, Thompson abruptly left Seattle in 1904-1905 and moved back to Toronto. At that time, the Toronto economy was booming, and Thompson quickly found that his skills in lettering, photo engraving, and design were in high demand. After several different jobs, he finally settled at Grip Limited in 1908. Fellow employees and artists included J.E.H. MacDonald, Franklin Carmichael, Arthur Lismer, Frank Johnson, and Fred Varley, who, along with Lauren Harris and A.Y. Jackson, later formed the nationally and internationally recognized Group of Seven in 1920. Tom's first known visit to Algonquin Park was a sketching trip that took place in May 1912. Upon the recommendation of a colleague, he and another artist friend, Ben Jackson, took the train north to Canoe Lake, where park ranger Mark Robinson noted their arrival on the evening of May 18th. When asked about a place to stay, Robinson suggested Mowat Lodge. As I have discussed in several books and in previous podcast episodes, Mowat Lodge was originally the Gilmore Lumber Company boarding house. 
and was now leased by Shannon Fraser and his wife Annie. Fraser had first come to Canoe Lake in 1907, hired to supervise the ongoing settling and dismantling of the Gilmore Lumber Company's then-bankrupt Canoe Lake Mills. Once this was done, he stayed on as postmaster, and later, seeing the growth in tourism, decided to lease the former boarding house and turn it into a lodge. Originally called Camp Mowat, the lodge itself was a two-story whitewashed structure with a veranda across the front. Set on rising ground some distance from the water, it faced the old chipyard beside the old mill, which was 30 acres of more or less treeless desolation covered with pine slabs and sawdust. Fraser, known as Shan, was tall with bright red curly hair and freckles. He was well-spoken, good-natured, a great talker and showman, and always full of great ideas. He loved to be the center of attention, although to some, such as Winifred Trainer, he was not to be trusted, especially when it came to money. He never liked to be seen in anything other than a blue suit, shirt, tie, and fedora, giving the aura of a successful businessman. Not much is known about his wife Annie, but pictures show her to be a smallish, slightly stout woman with wavy brown hair and kindly eyes. According to every story, she was industrious and very hardworking. She kept her own cows and chickens, which supplied the hotel with fresh milk and eggs. Mark Robinson, whom I've also mentioned in previous podcasts, was the local park ranger who had joined the park staff in 1907. His family lived in Barrie, as in those days park rangers' families were not allowed to live with them in the park. He would faithfully send his wife his paycheck and a few times a year would visit them, and occasionally his children would come and stay a few weeks, usually in the summer. Thompson and Jackson took Robinson's advice, and soon after, the two rented a canoe and equipment, likely from Fraser, and explored the Tri-Lake area of Canoe, Tea, and Smoke Lakes, though perhaps going as far afield as Ragged Lake to fish. One presumes that Thompson did a bit of painting along the way. As A.Y. Jackson went on to write in the 1930s, Tom was never understood by lots of people. He was quiet, modest, and cared nothing for social life, and was happiest with his pipe, his fishing pole, or his sketching, alone communing with nature. It must have been a pleasant experience, as later in the summer, he and another friend, William Broadhead, spent August and much of September on a canoe trip from Biscotang, near Sudbury, to the eastern shore of Georgian Bay. This likely solidified his reputation as a strong canoeist and outdoorsman, which makes the later circumstances of his death on a relatively calm canoe lake, a lake he knew well, so mystifying, at least to us local residents. Thompson's initial painting habit was to make small sketches on canvas glued to small boards, which could easily be stowed and later reimagined into larger canvases. During the winter of 1912-13, one of his sketches from his northern trip became a northern lake, which, to his delight, was accepted for display by the Ontario Society of Artists exhibition. Soon after, it was purchased by the Ontario Department of Education, for $250, a significant sum at the time. At around this same time, Thompson met Dr. James McCollum, who would later become a patron, key supporter, and protector of Thompson's artistic legacy. According to a 1990 portrait prepared by the National Gallery, McCollum was described as a man who loved sailing in canoes, Chinese theater, and opera. He sported a waxed Simon Legree-type mustache, 
wore a fedora to cover a balding pate, and overall was rather eccentric, arrogant-looking, and a caustic nonconformist. As McCollum said later, Thompson's small paintings made me feel that the North had gripped Thompson as it had gripped me when I was a boy of eleven and when I first sailed and paddled through its silent places. Thompson spent much of the summer and fall of 1913 in Algonquin, a special year because it was the 20th anniversary of the park's founding. It is believed that this is when he first met and became friends with Winifred Trainer and her family, whose parents owned a cabin a short distance from Mowat Lodge, where Thompson sometimes stayed when not camping at his favorite spot across the lake. Born in 1885, Winifred, known usually as Winnie, lived with her family in Huntsville and was a local bookkeeper. Her father, Hugh, was a lumber foreman and in 1912 took over the lease of one of the original Gilmore buildings known as the Mance. It got this name because visiting ministers would, from time to time, hold services there for the local Mowat labor force. According to A.Y. Jackson, Thompson's few dozen sketches from that summer were generally unremarkable. Though they, quote, did show great knowledge of the country and were faithful and painstaking, they were surprisingly somber and dead in color and very simple in composition. Two, however, Thompson liked well enough to work up into large canvases. Both were displayed at the March 1914 Ontario Society of Artists exhibition, with the National Gallery of Canada purchasing one of them called Moonlight for $500. In January of 1914, a reluctant Thompson, unconvinced that he could make a living as an artist, and apparently a bit worried about becoming a, quote, object of patronage, nevertheless agreed to take up a sponsorship offer from Dr. James McCollum. He left commercial art to devote himself to painting for one year. He moved with A.Y. Jackson into a studio called the Studio Building in Toronto, near Bloor and Young Streets, that McCollum and Lauren Harris had built. For those unaware, Harris's family was the Harris side of the Massey Harris farm implement manufacturing concern. In the early spring of 1914, Thompson headed north to Canoe Lake, with the snow still on the ground in some places, and soon after was joined by Arthur Lismer. The two of them camped on Molly's Island on Smoke Lake and, as before, paddled and sketched Canoe, Smoke, Ragged, Crown, and Wolf Lakes. Bill Callaghan, the park ranger who was based at the Smoke Lake Shelter Hut, took a picture of the two, which is one of the few images of Thompson that exist. In late May, Thompson accepted an invitation to paint near Go Home Bay, where McCollum had a cottage. He stayed for a few weeks, but then headed out in early August on an extensive solo canoe trip. This trip took him north along the French River to Lake Nipissing, and then south via North Tee and Manitou Lakes, and he was back at Canoe Lake by mid-September. During the trip, he spent some days with park ranger Tom Waddy at North Tee Lake, who subsequently wrote in his diary at the time that he liked Thompson's partridge stew and dumplings. Later, he would note that his view was that Thompson was a fisherman of exceptional skill, who could, quote, cast his line in a perfect figure eight and have the fly land on the water at the exact spot planned. He knew trout have to be down in the cold water in summer. He looked for the rocky shelves where they loiter. He studied their habits, observed them feeding. He made his own lures from bits of metal, feathers, and beads and watched what the fish were taking and painted his own bugs. 
Roy McGregor, much later, argues that this was likely poetic license, as anyone who knows anything about fishing knows that the image where he is supposedly, quote-unquote, tying a fly is, in fact, quote, merely attaching a heavy trout lure known as a spoon to his line. Fly fishing, with its, quote-unquote, artistic swirls in its own poetic language, might lend itself magnificently to the cowslip-shouldered streams of Britain and the wide, shallow rivers of Atlantic Canada, but would largely be a futile exercise in Algonquin. The small hooks of flies that must be tossed back and forth would become hopelessly tangled and caught up in the tangle of vegetation that encroaches the park's waterways and surrounds the deep lakes where the trout hide. Algonquin lakes, McGregor said, are much more suited to troll fishing, where one simply drops a weighted triple-hooked metal lure off the back of a boat or a canoe and hauling it about the deep waters in hope of a strike. According to park ranger Mark Robinson, the colors that fall, quote-unquote, were the most spectacular that had ever been seen in Algonquin Park. Fellow artist A.Y. Jackson joined Thompson around mid-September, and the two paddled, fished, and painted, again on canoe, smoke, and ragged lakes. A few weeks later, artists Fred Varley and Arthur Lismer, along with their families, joined them. Later, after Thompson's death, Lismer recalled Thompson's quote-unquote affinity for the woods, his remarkable powers of observation, his understanding of wild animals and knowledge of their habits. The bush, he went on to say, is a place where one gets to know a man. One also learns a lot about one's own inadequacies. Thompson came to life in the bush. He saw a thousand things, animals and birds, and signs along the trail that others missed. I suspect that local Canoe Lake residents must have been overwhelmed by all the artists' attention and were scratching their heads as to what the excitement was all about. Audrey Sanders, in her History of Algonquin Park, The Algonquin Story, wrote that, quote, Moet Lodge was overflowing with all of the latest sketches. Guests and artists alike would share in friendly criticisms and unstinting praise of the most recent additions. I'm afraid this seems hard to believe, but it does make for a great anecdote, especially since at the time, painting was considered by many of the locals to be unmanly and certainly not a valid profession. Roy McGregor would often quote both his grandfather, a park ranger, and Ralph Bice, a local fishing guide, as not having many positive things to say about Thompson. But the colors must have touched him at some level, and in some way, because as he wrote at the time to Dr. McCollum, just now, the maples are about all stripped of leaves, but the birches are very rich in color. We are all working away, but the best I can do does not do the place much justice in the way of beauty. Jackson and myself are having a fine time and seem to have about the same habits about camping and can always find sketching near the same place. According to Jackson and Lismer, by 1914, Thompson's painting moved in a whole new direction. In specific, according to Charles Hill in his 2002 biographical essay on Thompson's artistic journey, he said, unquote, Thompson abandoned the linear precision and subdued coloring of his earlier work as he experimented with texture, color, and a variety of compositions. His most remarkable work of that season was a painting called Winter. In it, according to Hill, and I quote, the clouds are broadly brushed, the trees freely delineated. There is a lightness of touch and a naturalness and spontaneity about the sketch 
that show how rapidly he had advanced within a very short period. Also, according to Addison and Harwood, as Thompson traveled frequently during this time, he quote-unquote absorbed all the sights and sounds of the park and accumulated a host of impressions. When he was ready to set them down in a sketch, he did so with extraordinary rapidity, accuracy, and vividness. According to Dr. McCollum, Thompson's idea, quote, seemed to be that the way to learn to paint was to paint. He was not concerned with any special technique or particular mode of application of color. With this kind of brushstroke or that, if it were true to nature, the technique might be anything. Though not well known, of course, at that time, the general conclusion in hindsight seemed to be that the quote-unquote effect of his work was to lead other painters for the first time to consider seriously the Canadian Northwoods as an aesthetic subject. Almost anyone who saw his sketches viewed the Northland with new eyes. An acquaintance, Ernest Thompson, who he met and conversed with around this time, once said in later years, I have seen beauty in the bare and broken branches of dead trees ever since. In November of 1914, Thompson left Algonquin and returned to Toronto. The Great War, as World War I would later be called, had begun the previous August, and its effect was just starting to be realized. Apparently, the public's interest in art ceased. Dealer galleries had no patrons. Tourist publicity advertising, publications weren't being designed, nor were they being printed because there were so few tourists. Engraving houses such as where Thompson had previously worked cut their staffs. But even in these difficult times, with many, if not most, of his friends losing their jobs, Thompson had a very productive winter during 1914-1915. He brought to life seven of his sketches as large canvases, including Northern River, one of his most famous and iconic paintings, which he called his swamp picture. Northern River was bought by the National Gallery of Canada in 1915 for $500, which is about $11,000 today. Another painting from this period, Burnt Lake, was apparently acquired by Lauren Harris. One piece of interesting sidebar before I continue. Around 1988, I believe, my Canoe Lake neighbor John Ridpath and his colleague George Garland from Smoke Lake decided to see if they could find the location where Thompson painted Northern River. They suspected that it might be one of the swamps located north of Gill or Sam Lakes, which are located a short bushwhack just west of Canoe Lake. Back in the 1900s, a tote road ran from the Gilmore Depot on Tea Lake to Mowat, running along the western shore of Canoe Lake. Armed with topographical maps of the area and a hatchet, the two headed west up the ridge from Ridpass Cabin and eventually found the remains of the old tote road. Heading south, they did indeed find the numerous swamps and were convinced that one was a highly probable location for Northern River. Who knows for sure, but it makes an intriguing story and a marvelous, if not difficult, day trip. It's never been resolved as to why Thompson was never called into service for the war effort, nor whether or not he ever volunteered. Mark Robinson said in later years that Thompson had tried to enlist several times but was turned down, perhaps due to problems with his feet. According to Roy McGregor, Edward Godin didn't think this was true. Godin was a fellow ranger with whom Thompson lived during the summer of 1916 at Acre, on the east side of the park. 
His perspective was that Thompson had shared with him during that summer that he didn't think that Canada should have been involved in the war at all. In mid-March 1915, Thompson returned to Canoe Lake with a new silk tent and a chestnut canoe. Chestnut canoes, manufactured by the Chestnut Canoe Company of New Brunswick, were at the time highly prized because of their elegant lines and ease of paddling. They had a small keel, which made them quick and responsive in windy weather, and for traveling on winding rivers. These characteristics I know to be true, as I bought one of the last canoes manufactured in 1977. Thompson must have not liked the standard chestnut red or green shade and soon after repainted it a unique dove gray by mixing cobalt blue with marine gray. Now with this unique color, everyone could recognize Tom's canoe, which made some of the later events of July 17 all the more curious, at least for us Canoe Lake locals. By late April, he'd completed 25 sketches of the slowly melting snow and was apparently pleased when the young daughter of a Canoe Lake resident supposedly commented that one looked just like some bushes she had seen the previous day. After the ice went out, Tom obtained a park fishing license and assisted various parties on fishing trips that lasted through mid-July, but according to his correspondence at that time, they may have not resulted in very much actual paid work. He then headed off again in August on another extended canoe trip to the Magnetowan River, South River, North Tee, and eventually to Lake Cochon in the north end of the park. In September, he wrote Dr. McCollum, telling him that he had just completed about 100 sketches so far, which oddly he considered to be very few. For most of these sketches, he adopted artist A.Y. Jackson's habit of painting directly on hardwood pulp boards. His principal interests seem to have been sky effects and light as a central subject, as according to Hill, they were painted with quote-unquote increasingly generalized form and heightened color, shortened and staccato brushwork, dramatic sweeps, and more decorative design. Back at Moat on Canoe Lake by mid-September, he took another fishing party to Crown Lake, where he was photographed fly-casting from a rock. I thought that now might be a good time to take a musical break and share with you a song by Juno award-winning Canadian singer-songwriter Ian Tamblin. It's from his 2015 CD entitled Walking in the Footsteps, Celebrating the Group of Seven, and it's called My Heart Belongs to the Northland in Spring. To Algonquin, springtime is coming. Ice on the lake and the geese on the wing. Shadows still long and the snow fields white blinding. My heart belongs to the Northland in spring. Back to the tum flying, Creole and the paddle. Back to the easel and the promise I bring To capture the light, the colors away My heart belongs to the Northland in spring 
White clouds billow and the birches turn gold Hills dark velvet in evening Tamarack maple and the lean of jack pine Time to take chances, time to be bold Back to Tea Lake, Canoe Lake and Moen Bags at the station, they wait for the train Farewell to the sound, good friends and family My heart belongs to the Northland in spring White clouds below and the birches turn gold Hills dark velvet in the evening Tamarack maple and the lean jack pine Time to take chances, time to be bold Back to Tea Lake, Canoe Lake and Moen Bags at the station Wait for the train Farewell to the sound of Good friends and family My heart belongs To the Northland in spring Farewell to the sound of Good friends and family My heart belongs To the Northland in spring In late November of 1915, Thompson returned to Toronto. But this time his former studio had been rented to other artists, so a shack behind the studio building became his new hangout. By then, many of his artist friends had enlisted and were in Europe. This included Jackson, who enlisted in 1915, Harris in 1916, and Varley, who had enlisted as a war artist. Arthur Lismer had moved with his young family to Nova Scotia, and had taken a job as a teacher at the Victoria School of Art and Design in Halifax. The shack today resides on the grounds of the McMichael Gallery, a little northwest of Toronto. According to the McMichael Gallery website, Thompson added a large window, bunk, shelves, table, and easel. The spot soon became a gathering spot for his many friends and colleagues. That winter, he worked on several large canvases and exhibited four of them, at the Spring 1916 Ontario Society of Artists exhibition. The National Gallery again purchased one named Spring Ice. Interestingly enough, not all of the art critics were impressed with his work. As Margaret Fairbain, writing in the Toronto Daily Star, wrote, quote unquote, Thompson shows a fondness for intense yellows and orange and strong blue, Altogether, a fearless use of violent color, which can scarcely be called pleasing, and yet which seems an exaggeration of a truthful feeling that time will temper. On the other hand, critic Estelle Kerr, after having seen a solo exhibit of Thompson's work at the Toronto Heliconian Club late in March 1916, wrote in The Courier that he was, quote, one of the most promising of Canadian painters, who follows the Impressionist movement, and his works reveal himself to be a fine colorist, a clear technician, and a truthful interpreter of the Northland in its various aspects. 
For the 1916 season, Thompson decided to apply for and was accepted to work as a fire ranger in Algonquin and was assigned to work on the east side of the park, based out of Ranger Godden's cabin near Acre at Grand Lake. Though official records don't record much fire activity during that period, Thompson complained to Dr. McCollum that fall that he'd been able to do quote-unquote very little sketching this summer as the two jobs, fire ranging and painting, don't fit in. When we are traveling, two rangers go together, and one carries the canoe and the other the pack, and there's no place for a sketch outfit when you are fire ranging. However, the sketches that he did paint ended up being some of his best work, including both the Jack Pine and the West Wing. Alas, exactly where he painted these two hallmarks of his work is hard to know and has been a subject of speculation ever since. His cabin mate, Edward Godin, said that the Jack Pine was sketched whilst at Grand Lake and that the West Wing was sketched out somewhere near Kiosk in the northern eastern part of the park. Alternatively, Ranger Waddy said the West Wing was painted at Round Lake and even Ranger Mark Robinson said it was done at Acre on Grand Lake. Still other old-timers in Huntsville claimed, according to Roy McGregor in Northern Light, that the West Wind was painted on Ferry Lake when Thompson was staying with the trainers. But Winifred said that Thompson told her that he'd painted the West Wing at Cedar Lake near the railway depot at Brent. Dr. McCallum, though, claimed in 1921 and in 1937 that he and Lauren Harris, confirmed by Harris, were actually with Thompson on Little Cochon Lake when he sketched the Jack Pine in April or early May of 1916. To make the story even more delicious, Harris apparently remembered and recounted much later. One afternoon in early spring, a dramatic thunderstorm came up. There was a wild rush of wind across the lake and all nature was tossed into turmoil. Tom and I were in an abandoned lumber shack. When the storm broke, Tom looked out, grabbed his sketch box, ran out into the gale, squatted behind a big stump, and commenced to paint in a fury. He was one with the storm's fury, and I saw his anxiety, while keyed to a high pitch, was nonetheless controlled. In twenty minutes, Tom had caught in paint the power and run of a storm in the north. McCallum's addition to the story was a bit different, making it a little more dramatic. And he wrote, quote, the decorative pine tree in the foreground had blown down on Thompson just before he'd finished the original sketch. Harris thought Thompson had been killed, but Thompson immediately sprang up and continued painting. So who knows? Although there's now a 1.6-kilometer trail called the Jack Pine Trail at Acre, which claims to be the very spot where Thompson was inspired to paint his iconic work, and having visited it, I have to say, it sure is convincing. According to Hill, quote-unquote, the sketches of 1916 are characterized by directness of construction and sophisticated color. Green foliage, for example, is painted broadly in wide strokes of saturated color. Most of his sketches were painted on wood panels and in some cases opened the space by keeping patches of the wood visible. Sky studies were more fluid, Air breezed through the sketches, making the previous year's studies appear dense in comparison. To see exactly what he's speaking about, Google Thompson's sketches and compare his 1915 sketch titled Sunset with his 1916 sketch titled Yellow Sunset. 
Thompson also painted a number of logging-related sketches that summer as he was working near several logging sites. These included some of his most famous works, such as Bateau, Alligator, both subjects being boats that were used in lumbering, and The Drive, which was a representation of a spring log drive. The drive, it is believed, was painted at Grand Lake. During the winter of 1916-17, Thompson was again back at the shack in Toronto, and according to a letter that he wrote his brother-in-law, Tom Harkness, it was a very productive period. For some reason, he didn't submit any of these works to the Spring 1917 Ontario Society of Artists exhibition. According to Hill, in this collection of works, Thompson's decorative sketches were lighter and the space more open. As he wrote in 2002, and I quote, The background, for example, of Maple Saplings October was broadly painted and flattened, and the linear tracery of the saplings gave the work an exciting, nervous energy. In Autumn's Garland, vertical trees and red leaves from the foreground, with the contrast of lighter-colored vertical patterning in the foliage and darker horizontal bands of color in the background of woodland waterfall, created richer, more complex images. Hill also noted that Thompson made some interesting reinterpretations of his Jack Pine and the West Wind sketches during their translation to the larger canvases. The tree in the West Wind was moved to the right, the hills to the left were extended and the coloring strengthened. In the Jack Pine, he enhanced the drawing of the tree, lowered the, the far hills so that the tree appears more massive, and stylized the foliage and completely altered the light and coloring. It became, as Hill said, quote, a contemplative picture, enriched by the delicate crimson tracery of the drooping branches and foliage and the glowing evening light. Now we know, of course, that this being an audio podcast, it's impossible to see what Hill is describing without looking at the two works side by side. But to do so is enlightening, especially for me, who has little understanding of art. In 1917, Thompson returned to Canoe Lake in early spring, perhaps as early as late March, again to paint the snow melting in the bush and the lake ice breaking up, which didn't happen until the early part of May, unusually late. This time he stayed at Moat Lodge rather than camping, one presumes because the weather was not conducive to extended camping. But once things got a little warmer, he helped turn the soil for a vegetable garden for Mowat owners Shannon and Annie Fraser. Also staying at Mowat Lodge that spring were Robert, known as Robin, and Daphne Crombie. Robin had enlisted in late 1914, but soon contracted tuberculosis, which ended his military career. For those not aware, tuberculosis was a significant contributor to both death and being pensioned from the military during World War I. The only treatment at the time was thought to spend 10 to 12 hours a day outside in the cool, fresh balsam-scented country air. Canoe Lake in Algonquin Park, with its many balsam trees, made an ideal setting. As noted in Episode 1, the Muskoka Cottage Sanatorium had been built in Gravenhurst in 1897 for treatment of the disease. According to Daphne's later recollections in interviews with Ronald Pittaway, an Algonquin Park researcher and with author-journalist Roy McGregor in 1977, in the spring of 1914, she had become good friends with Thompson. She and Annie Fraser are the two figures in the foreground of Larry Dixon's cabin that was painted uh, in 1917. She said that Thompson would sometimes talk to her about the tone and light impressions he was trying to capture. 
According to Roy McGregor in his book Northern Light, Daphne's recollections of a quiet, lonely, and even somewhat manic Thompson were in line with Mark Robinson's, though Robinson didn't articulate those thoughts until 1930 in a letter to Blodwin Davies, Thompson's first biographer. To Davies, Robinson said that Thompson was, quote, jovial and jolly and ready for a frolic of any kind so long as it was clean and honest in its purpose. But then, quote, at times he appeared quite melancholy and defeated in manner. At such times he would suddenly awaken and be almost angry in appearance and action. It was at those times he did his best work. Perhaps it was hindsight that led Robinson to know what or wasn't Thompson's best work, as he certainly didn't make any comments in his diary about art or of Thompson's moods at the time. In later years, Robinson would also say that Thompson told him he had 62 days of sketches that recorded the daily weather, be it rain or shine or sun or snow or dark or bright. Later, this number increased to at least 90 sketches, according to Robinson. Unfortunately, after Thompson's death, nothing approached that number were ever found, either shipped to Toronto, as Thompson had told James McCallum he was, was going to do, or later retrieved by his brother George from the nearby trainer cabin, where he may have stored that summer's works. At best, I would think that with Robinson's limited, if any, art experience, he would only have been able to comment on whether the colors Thompson used were accurate, or that his depictions of trees and rocks and lakes and rivers and weather were true representations of the nature that Robinson saw every day. According to Roy McGregor, Ontario artist and meteorologist Phil Chadwick created a PowerPoint presentation that illustrates with graphs and overlays how precise Thompson was in painting clouds, affected by the winds, including their build-up, flow, and direction. Even stars were placed exactly as they were in the night sky in his sketches of this period. Daphne Crombie also said much later that Thompson never shared with her his friendship and perhaps possible romantic interest in Winifred Trainer, nor was she ever introduced to Winnie herself. This was surprising since the Trainer cottage was a stone's throw away from Mowat, and the Trainers were in the habit of visiting her cottage on weekends once the ice was out. Daphne would go on decades later to be a major contributor to the mystery about Thompson's death, as you'll find out in the next episode. In late April 1917, Thompson applied for a guiding license, having decided the previous summer that fire ranging made sketching too difficult. In his last letter to Dr. McCollum on July 7th, he mentioned that he'd done some guiding that spring and was expecting to have some other trips that month. Financially, he said he was in reasonable shape and writing to his family thought he could manage for a year. He also suggested in correspondence with his brother-in-law, Tom Harkness, that he might head out west later that summer to paint in the Rockies. That spring, there were, must have been amazing shows of the Northern Lights that Thompson captured in sketches. Now, I've only ever seen the Northern Lights in the fall, so I'm thinking that spring shows must have been unusual. According to Hill, Thompson's later spring sketches were painted with, quote, increasing energy and less precision. He boldly generalized the forms of the landscape, the tips of the spring trees, with just a few strokes of the brush. Dr. McCollum visited in May and, interestingly enough, later wrote on the back of Thompson's Tea Lake Dam sketch, Thundercloud in spring at chute where Muskoka River flows out of the lake looked at from the left side. The rush of water and the feeling of daylight is very marked as well as the feeling of spring. In trees, 
and bushes in the foreground. On the right side of the creek, I found a poacher's bag with beaver skins stretched just before his drowning. I'm not exactly sure what McCallum meant, whether it was at the beaver or the poacher who had drowned. According to the Algonquin Park Weather Station records, the average temperature on July 8, 1917, was 16.4 degrees Celsius, and about a centimeter and a half of rain fell that day. It was indeed a wet, dull morning when dawn broke. Some say that a light northeasterly wind blew across the lake from Hayhurst Point. Others say that it was calm. Either way, about mid-morning, Tom Thompson left his room at Mowat Lodge and headed in the direction of the Algonquin Hotel up at Joe Lake. Some say he went to share a cup of tea with Ed and Molly Colson. Others say that Shannon Fraser had asked him to help him haul a boat of some type across the Joe Lake Portage. Either way, Ranger Thompson, whose cabin was just across the rail bridge from the path to the Algonquin Hotel, allegedly saw the two, Fraser and Thompson, head south along the wagon road that ran parallel to the river that flowed out of Big Joe Lake. Reaching what was then known as Fraser's Landing, a small, relatively flat strip of shoreline just down from Mowat Lodge, Tom prepared and launched his distinctive dove-gray chestnut canoe. Collecting his paddles, tackle box, and a small duffel bag, his paint box and axe, he stepped into his canoe. Soon after, Shannon returned from the Moat Lodge kitchen with a loaf of bread, some bacon wrapped in a rough ground sheet, and proceeded to tie the package into the bow of Tom's canoe. Mark Robinson, writing in his diary, noted that there was also some jam and maple syrup. Thompson was wearing khaki trousers, white canvas shoes, a lumberman's gray woolen shirt, and no hat. Tom likely checked to make sure that his spare portaging paddle was tied in place, set his trolling line, and headed off south down Canoe Lake. Later, Mark Robinson reported that three old tin pails, a pair of buckskin moccasins, an axe, three trolling spoons, and some of Thompson's fishing line were found at the Fraser Landing dock, presumably having been left behind. It's odd that Thompson would have left his axe behind, it being essential, if he'd had any plans to make a fire for a meal, and as pointed out in Northern Light, if his canoe had been later found upside down, the axe likely would have sunk to the bottom of the lake. According to some stories, several Mowat Lodge guests watched him depart with his easy, confident, seemingly effortless strokes, barely making a ripple on the water. Other versions of the story have Shannon Fraser noting the time on his vest pocket watch of 12.50 p.m. That would be the last time that Tom Thompson was ever seen alive or heard from again. I hope you've enjoyed this first of three parts of an episode about Canadian artist Tom Thompson and his adventures in Algonquin Park. As I mentioned at the beginning, a referent list of the titles used to create these episodes can be found in the descriptions on www.podbean.com and on my website, www.algonquinparkheritage.com. I've also posted on my website pictures of Thompson and some of the participants in this drama. I'd also like to give a very special thanks to Ian Tamblin, who so kindly has allowed me and is allowing me to use a number of his songs in all of the episodes of uh, This Life of Tom Thompson. In the next episode, part two of this series, I'll continue our journey of Tom Thompson and that fateful July day.